0: Of note, this episode was pre-recorded. The scholarship recipient has already been chosen. Please visit Candice Lenore's website for further information regarding next year's scholarship. Welcome to Running is Cheaper Than Therapy podcast. I am your host, Dr. Wita L. Brown. I inspire and promote movement. I explain how running adds to life from a mental wholeness aspect. How obstacles can be overcome in life to make it to your finish line. Welcome to Running is Cheaper Than Therapy, episode 11. Today we have Candace Lenore. Just to give you a little background about Candace, she is from Chicago, Illinois. She graduated from Florida Agricultural and Mechanical University, where she completed the five-year MBA program and earned both her undergraduate and graduate degrees. She also minored in theater and later studied at the William Esper two-year acting program in New York. Currently, Candace continues to hone her skills at the Richard Lawson Studios in Los Angeles, where she now resides. Candace has worked in sales and marketing for over 18 years. However, her true heart and passion is in the arts. Candace is an actress, producer, and writer. Her resume is composed of an array of short and featured films. Her work behind the camera consists of dating and waiting which was the first film Candace wrote, produced, and starred in, and has proven to be a fan favorite at multiple festivals, such as the Hollywood Black Film Festival, Indie Night Film Festival, DTLA Film Festival, etc. It has won for Best Comedic Screenwriting at the 10th Annual Angelica in Big Bear. Within the last year, Candace has been honing her skills as a producer, writer, and director. Attracted to stories that tell people's truth and rooted in realness, her latest short, The Moment, is a look into some of the stories you will see come from her production company. Your Path Production. As an actress, Candace has completed over 30 independent short and feature films to date. Most notable is the film Hey Diddy Diddy, in addition to the web series, 12 Steps to Recovery. Aside from working in front of the camera, Candace has line produced and served as an assistant director for multiple projects. Candace started a scholarship foundation in 2020, Your Path Scholarship. Your Path Scholarship is about charting your own path. The scholarship is to help motivate, empower students financially to get one step closer toward what they truly desire. The scholarship is for African-American black students who want to major or minor in the arts, theater, film, TV, dance, music, etc. At historically black colleges and universities, awardees will receive $500 to help cover any school expenses. Candace is now a published author and a number one new release on Amazon being number one. Overcoming Obstacles and Healing Your Inner Child is Candice's first book release in 2020. A budding motivational speaker and champion of building legacies, Candice believes in standing in your own power and living your truth. I have known Candice for years. She is a proud graduate again of Florida Agricultural and Mechanical University in Tallahassee, Florida, which sits at the highest of seven hills. She is also a member of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated. She is also my ISM. And for those of you who may not know what an ISM is, we share the same number, but we pledged in different years. But we both pledged the Beta Alpha chapter of Delta Sigma Theta at Florida A&M University. So please welcome Candice Lenore to Running is Cheaper Than Therapy podcast. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me. First, um, tell me what was your inspiration behind writing your book?
1: Well, the inspiration has always been a thought in my mind for a long time, but I've always had it in my mind as a movie. So growing up, there were a few people that told me like, you know, you should talk about your story. And at first I felt like, well, you know, it wasn't anything special. I'm like, it's just, you know, my life. But, you know, people were just like, no, you should talk about it. And so... As I started thinking about what that would look like, at first it always was in a movie format because there were certain images that just stuck in my head that I can see. But then when I was telling my friend, like, I speak sometimes, I'm like, I want to get more into speaking. He was just like, you should write a book. So a few people was like, write a book. You can always do the movie. And when I was trying to figure out what part of my life I wanted to capture, doing the book just made a little bit more sense. And overall, the inspiration just came from if there's some one kid or one person that I can help with my story, I wanted to be able to do that. Like, I feel like we're here for not ourselves, but for other people. And if my life can help somebody in some kind of way, then I felt like it was my purpose, my job to do it. How
0: long did it take for you to write your book?
1: The writing process was, I would say it was eight months that I finished writing And then it was like, okay, send it to an editor. So I first sent it to an editor. They, you know, dealt with the grammar and it came back. And I was just like, I feel like I need a little bit more, something different. I started asking questions and it was like, okay, you need a content editor. So I reached out to one of our sorors, our neo, uh, her name Deanna L. Carpenter, because she edit books. I had been talking to her about what I wanted to do. And she was just like, yeah, send it over. And because she knew me, I felt like, you know, she wasn't going to change the context. She was just going to, you know, help make it better. And that's exactly what happened. So from that time until the very end, when it was ready to go, it was about a year.
0: After your book was published, is it difficult for people to know your whole story? Is that a personal thing? Or do people know your story? Like sharing some intimate details of your life?
1: (laughs) No, you know, it's so interesting. There are people that may know bits and pieces. And then like one of my good friends from college that actually stayed with my family for a good period of time after she finished reading it. She was like, Candace, I thought I knew you. I thought I knew everything about you. And it's funny because I'm open, but I'm not a person that just give a whole, like all my information on the table. Like if I feel like a part of my life can help in some kind of way, I'll share that. And I don't mind. I'm not like closed, like you can't know anything about me, but I just don't, I don't know. I think I've felt like I never wanted to burden people with my trauma or my history or anything like that. But no, there was a few people that have gotten back to me. It was just like, I didn't know these things. I didn't know the full story or how intricate it was. And yeah, as far as being harder or personable, it is because it feels like you're open now. I don't want to say open to judgment, but you're open and people know is seeing something ah, it's so weird, it's like they can have judgment, they can have viewpoints and which people will, so it's kind of like you just cut yourself open and now you bleed, <laughs> people can see inside what's going on, but at the same time, it's healing in a mm. lot of ways, you know, writing I feel like this writing this book was extremely healing, and I have a good teacher that's like, you know you're only as sick as your biggest secret mm. so. That's true. I don't want to be sick or anything. <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> let me share. That's
0: true. When I wrote my book, every time I read it, it like it brought back the painful part. So it's something I had to deal with by reading my book over, like mm-hmm. when I had to do book readings and things like that. So that's why I wonder.
1: Yeah. And it's interesting because it's like you live these, you know, at this point, a lot of this stuff has been over 20 years, you know, or whatever. But it's like certain parts when I'm reading, I'm like, I'm still getting misty-eyed I'm getting choked up about it and everything and it's just like wow somebody asked me was like so are you healed and I'm like I think healing is a continual process you know it is and so it's been a very interesting experience and then like like with my book and even like other work I do with Phil I think I have a capacity of how many times I can like read it through or watch mm-hmm. it through I'll probably go back for bits and pieces but yeah, it's, it's like, okay, let me get maybe two, three times. And then like, all right, <laughs> what's a no?
0: <laughs> Tell me the significance of the name of your book.
1: Being number one. So being number one, for me, it's a play on, on words. The significance of it is is that it's being the first, being the eldest, that first child that has to, or the person that has that responsibility as a first kid that has to be responsible, take on a lot of different you know, responsibilities and that sort. So for me, it represented being the eldest, but also because I'm an athlete, being number one is also competitive. So it's like you want to be first in the things that you do. Deanna is actually the person that helped me with this, because as I was telling her, my story and a lot of it stemmed from being the eldest child and what came with that, all the goodness, but then also, you know, the pressures, the bad and all of that kind of stuff. And she was like, the title, the word, it just keeps playing in my head as being number one, being number one. And I was like, really? She's like, yeah. And so I sat with it for a while and I was just thinking about what does being number one mean? It means so many different things. And anytime you're number one in anything, it comes with a lot. So it's like, what does being number one mean to you? Obviously, is stemming from my childhood or being the big sister, but it's also being the first in my family to do a lot of things, the first in my family, you know, my immediate family to like break some generational curses. So that's the significance of the title.
0: Speak to me about purpose. You talk about it in your book. Mm -hmm. What is purpose? And how did you determine what your purpose was?
1: Purpose is like your reason for being your reason for existence. Like why are you placed on this earth? What are you to do? I think I learned my purpose a long time ago. I wasn't probably fully clear on it, but there's always been things I feel like, I call them like things ever since I was younger that you know, you can, even when you're a child I feel like that really comes when you're a kid because you're just so new to stuff. You don't have any prejudice or nothing. is just you know, discouraging you to just be your authentic self. Mm-hmm. So I knew I always had a love for like helping other people. At a very young age, I learned that The way film and TV made me feel, I couldn't explain it then, but it was just such nervousness on the inside of me. I liked how those people made me evoked emotion within me. So I knew that at a very young age. And so as I started, you know, growing up, the things that attracted me always been like, how am I trying to set something up for someone else? I always feel like you reach back. You're not here by yourself. And I think when I started looking at my career and what I wanted to do or what I was good at, or just what brought me joy, it started unfolding together. But in the book, I do this thing. I say my raison d'etre and it's the reason for existence, the purpose. I would say what shaped that is in my class where I study at the Richard Lawson studio, we talk a lot about your purpose and your purpose isn't just like, okay, you're an actor or, you know, you're a doctor. It's like, how are you affecting others? Like I say, my purpose is power. I speak life to other people. Like, I feel like it's outside of just my own little box. It's like, how does it help other people to be their best version of themselves? And I think like with studying at the Rich Lawson Studio, with God and just spending time, just asking like, what am I supposed to be? What am I supposed to be doing here? Doing a purpose-driven life? You know, I mean, is it purpose-driven it's life? Purpose-driven life, yeah. right on. yeah. <laughs> doing that years and years ago, you know, when you go back and look at the things, it was like the same reoccurring thing, the reoccurring thing. It's just like, okay, this is your purpose. You know, so in what arena do you do that in? You know, like yours as a doctor, it's like you have your purpose. I don't know, maybe as a kid, you knew you wanted to be a doctor, but maybe not. But it comes up. And your purpose can be what it is, but apply to different fields. It don't have to just, you know, be one field.
0: That makes sense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it makes sense. And I didn't always want to be a doctor. So no, <laughs> it's funny. Actually, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a cashier. This was because I, I like the numbers. Yes. And I want to be a painter, even though I can't draw stick figures. And I wanted to be an actress for a minute, but I can't act. I just wanted to be famous for
1: a minute. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> So within that, what did you discover your purpose was?
0: Well, my purpose, similar to yours, I like feeding into other people, like helping people. So being a doctor helps feed that passion, but that's not the only way. Because I couldn't just go to work and come home and that just be my life. Right. So, like, I'm very athletic and it feeds me, but I like helping other people in that area, too. Mm -hmm. I think that's why I wrote a book to share my story, just because... Being active has just brought so much to me, not as far as being physically fit, but from just the emotional yeah. aspect. So I like to share that because it really helped me when I was going through depression after my mother passed away. Mm-hmm. So I just want to share what it means to me. Maybe it help other people in that same aspect. right.
1: It's the exactly because it's like when you figure out your purpose. Cause I think a lot of times when we grow up, people be like we create, we connect purpose with our job. Or what it is that we're supposed to do. But it's like you always got to look at what, even if you're doing a job, what is that same thread that excites you in that job or that passion there that excites you with other things? Like you're a doctor, you're an athlete, and what you do as far as being an athlete and how you help other people inspires others. So it's still that same thing. And like even now with this, with your podcast, it's a form of helping other people, you know? So-
0: Tell me the story about when you went to the store to get the gallon of milk and what you learned from the whole experience. Oh my gosh.
1: So, when I was about five years old, I had this idea of some sorts that I wanted to go prove to my mom and my stepfather that I was responsible and that I can go to the store and get milk. My mom went to the store earlier. She forgot it. My stepdad was about to go. So, it was like, Here's my chance to prove that I was a big girl. Because somewhere in my mind, I never was five. I was just always in my head, older than what I was. So they allowed me to do it. And, you know, at this point in my time, I had crossed like a small street by myself before, but not a big one. And as I was going to the store, it was like I was excited but nervous at the same time. And so when I get to this store, I get the milk. The man is looking for my parents. He doesn't see them. I give him the money and he gives me my change back. And I'm just like counting it because everything lied on the line of me making sure I had the right change that I got back and I was safe to say, you know, I'm (laughs) responsible at five. Mm -hmm. So as I was going back home, you know, obviously the milk was just getting heavier and heavier. And when I get home, I'm like, I feel like I'm in a home stretch. I try to open the door with one hand and the milk in the other, and it smashes on the ground. And it felt like in that moment, like just everything, it felt like I failed. So the lesson, I would say, looking back is I don't want, you know, not to put so much pressure on myself as a young age, but in that moment, it was like failure. I felt like I failed. And that set the tone for me in how I did everything else moving forward. It was like there was no room for failure. And some people were like, you know, well, why would you do that at such a young age? And it was like, I felt like I had to, you know, my mom, she was on drugs. And it was a lot of things that I was exposed to at a very, very young age. So somewhere in me, I felt like I needed to learn how to maneuver and take care of stuff. If she couldn't, you know, sometimes my stepdad wouldn't be there. So it was like, I was the one I felt like I was a secret keeper in a sense, like I knew this life that she was having, and I'm sure my stepdad did as well, but I knew this life she was having. And if for some reason she couldn't do something, I needed to be able to do it because it was at that time me and my middle sister. So it was the circumstances that made me feel like I had to be responsible. But in that moment, I felt failure. And just now, like looking back as an adult, it's like, one, a child shouldn't have that much responsibility at all. I, I talked to my stepdad, like, why did y'all let me go to the store? <laughs> like, why did y'all do that? And he's just like, you set your mind on something. You know, you were determined. He was just like, you just didn't seem like you were scared of anything. And, mm-hmm. was, and then the crazy part is, it was like, I was scared of a lot of stuff. But I just felt like I had, you know, I to had do to it. do it. Yeah.
0: Was that pressure, like, overwhelming at the age of five, thinking you had to do certain things and just being – like you said, the oldest and with your mother. And was that overwhelming to the point where, like, you could break down?
1: You know, I don't know if then I felt like it was overwhelming. So I'm going to say no in that sense. Like, obviously, I have my moments when I have my, like, you know, crying fits and or, or whatever the case like that. Or crying in the corner. But I think I learned. I don't wanna say learned. I think I learned how to cry quietly, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like, you know. <laughs> Stuff will happen and, you know, have my moment by myself and then pep talk to myself, like kind of like get it together and go out there and be strong, which is so crazy. Just that young. So I don't know. I think it's just one of those things like when you you don't know anything else, you just do. Mm -hmm. And you don't always think about the overwhelmness because it's like, oh, well, if you don't do it, who's going to do it? You know, so you just kick into action. And that's how I've been like when certain circumstances come up. It might be a moment when I'm just like, but then it's like I go into work mode, fix it mode. How do I do? What do I need to do? What needs to be taken care of? And, and it served me a lot in life. But then, you know, you get older and it's like it's not necessarily healthy always, you know, because there's going to be a moment when you break down. Like I know you said with depression with your mom after she passed. I know I felt like I had a little bit of that when after my dad passed and going back to school my sophomore year like everything just felt like it came in at that particular point in time. So yeah, so it's just like, I think a lot of women do that. Like we get in work mode. It's like, you don't even have time to think. You just go. Yeah. So the overwhelmness, you don't feel it then. But I, the interesting thing is like, you don't feel it, but your body feel it. That's true. You know, when they talk about nowadays with women and heart attack and African-American women, it's because we take on all these stressors and, you know, people are like, oh, y'all strong. But we don't realize how it's affecting us from our mental state, our health state, you know, all of that. And it may not come out in our action, but it is playing out in our body with different diseases.
0: That's true. So true. Yeah. Tell me about your relationship with your mother.
1: <laughs> you know, my mom, I love my mom. My mom, she was this beautiful woman. She was magnetic. Like, people was just drawn to her. She was a fun person. She had a great personality, quick-witted, and all of that. So, so, Growing up, it was like, I knew the love. I knew how much she loved me. But I couldn't understand, like, if you love me, then why are you doing this? Mm -hmm. You know, because it's hurting you, it's hurting us type of thing. So I won't definitely say it was a love-hate or anything, but it was just like, you know, you, you look up to your mom. Your mom is, you know, in a lot of ways, the person you want to be like. So it was so many qualities of hers that she had that I liked and I, you know, wanted to be like, but then there was qualities of hers that she had. I didn't want to, and was afraid, you know, because I felt like, oh, if I had that, then they say my mom was a daredevil. You know, she, Mm -hmm. she was just, just a daredevil in a sense. She probably like really was flexible and with the flow of everything. My personality is a little more structured. I'm not as, you know, as they describe my mom to be, you know, and I think I felt like at a young age that if I was like that free flowy, then I would go down a path that she would ended up going down. So the good things I felt like, you know, I took away some of those things. But then some of the things that I felt led her in a negative way. I was really adamant about not doing it, just scared about it. So it was like, I love my mom, but there was times when I was mad at her, you know, because I just didn't understand how she would, you know, put us in this position and everything. And I felt like I could save her or if I did certain stuff or didn't do certain things, that it would help. So I hate, sometimes hate saying this out loud, but you know, I used to be mad. I used to get mad at her, be mad at her a lot of times. And it's like, as much as I love my mom, when I got older, I started understanding that drugs are really a disease, you know? And then had to separate the person from the disease because even like we're telling the story, I never wanted people to, you know, just see my mom as a a drug addict or, you know, back in the days they used to call them hypes and all that kind of stuff. Like I wanted people to know part of probably not sharing some of it was embarrassment and not wanting people to only see her as a one dimensional person because she was a full woman and had very different levels to her and was very caring and very loving and very giving smart and it was just something that unfortunately people get involved in and they think they're strong or they can beat it or they, it won't get them but then they start you know going down a path that's just terrible but love my mom but you know was upset with her with obviously the choices <laughs>
0: <laughs> you say you get mad at her did you ever tell her that you were upset or you were always in a protective kind of mode? No,
1: like I would tell her like, you know, when I was younger, I will have, I don't know what they call them, fits or tantrums or something. Like I'm a cancer. So <laughs> uh, my mood, you know, I express my how I feel. So I remember one time and I, I hate I regretted this, but like my mom, she had left out the house. She was obviously going to go, you know, get high and stuff like that. And she left out the house, and I was just, I knew what she was gonna do. She wouldn't say, I'm gonna go get high, but I knew what she was doing. And so I was like, trying to be like, no, well, my sister needs this, or no, we, you know, don't leave us here, or whatever the case like that. But she left, and I was so angry at her for leaving. I remember yelling out the window, I hate you. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I didn't say that word, Mm -hmm. we didn't use that word. And it just, like, for me to say that, it felt, like it hurt me to even say it because you don't know if a person can walk back in the door. Mm-hmm. So I used to express it. I like, I remember, <laughs> I don't know, I threw a lock into the wall and mm-hmm. stuff like that. So, yeah, no, I would definitely say how I felt about it. But also with that being said, like, I felt like I hid her secret too. like from my stepdad, even though mm-hmm. he knew what was going on. You mm-hmm. know, if she wasn't home, I'll make an excuse. Oh, she went to the store or, you know, or something like that. So it, it was a, a little girl trying to be the mama type of situation.
0: Okay. Tell me about after your mother passed, like, how did you deal with that at such a young age and just move in, stay with your grandmother or with your sisters?
1: Well, when we learned that my mom died that day when we got the news, yeah, I went into the hospital and I think leading up to it, I knew something was going on because, you know, a few days before she was in the hospital, but she signed herself out. But I went into plan mode, to be honest. Like, at first, it's just like, OK, we learned we was in a north suburb at that moment. My stepdad took us to my grandma's house and everybody's surrounding us, you know, hugging us, loving on us. And I just remember just thinking like, OK. <laughs> all right, I got to make sure, like, my sister's okay. Okay, where are we going to live? What's going, you know, all that kind of stuff. Like, ah, nope, living with grandma, not going with your stepdad. And when we were at the funeral, when we finally had the funeral, it was this moment that my uncle, who was given a eulogy, like, looks at me and he says something. And it was just like, that moment set the tone where it was like, you got to take care of your sisters. And he might have said something like, you the big sister, show them, the way something simple but it was just like all eyes fell on me where I needed to make sure they were okay and okay because my two sisters they have the same dad I have a different dad so you know sometimes even though my stepfather been in my life since I was one but sometimes when things like this happen families go in opposite directions you know so I was adamant about all of us being together And adamant about not wanting to stay with my stepdad because I felt like, you know, he would have different women in and out of our life. And I didn't want my sisters, especially my youngest sister, because she was a baby at that time, to, you know, have influenced by any other women, a woman. And I felt like I would be the one doing a a whole bunch of stuff. So I threw myself into the art. I threw myself into sports, into school. Like, that was my outlet, like. I guess not to say not to deal with it, but to deal with it was me running to those things and basically being like, I'm changing my circumstance. I'm not gonna be a statistic. I'm gonna get out at Chicago. I'm gonna X, Y, and Z. So it became, school had always been my outlet, but I became really focused on sports and everything else to actually distract me from, you know, my child. How old were you? I was 13 when my mom passed. I was 13. So that was my eighth grade year. So in the middle of eighth grade, you know, transferred school. So that was new, moved in, you know, with my grandma and my aunt had two girls. There's a lot of adjusting. And I would say my aunts, which to me all had like some form of resemblance of my mom that helped. So I had a lot of women in my life. So I think that's why I'm like really big on girl tribes, you know, all of that helped. And then my grandma, you know, I talk about you know, her giving me my childhood back, because even though at that age, that tragedy happened on the flip side. Now I'm living with my grandma and my aunt. My grandma was like, you go be a kid. Your sisters will be fine. I have them go do. So with her giving me like basically that permission, it did allow me to, you know, go play the sports and not feel as worried about my sisters. Like I knew they were safe, even though they were still a concern. So I feel like, you know, I got some of my childhood back. It wasn't just me having to to do things.
0: Tell me about your relationship with your grandmother and your aunts.
1: Oh, my gosh. They're like, you know, all of them. My grandma, my mom, and my aunt, my mom as well. My family, I love my family so much because it's just like, they didn't miss a beat. My grandma is one of those women that she tell you how she feel. She may cut you out in one moment, but she fixing you a plate to eat (laughs) in the next, you know? She just had a big heart. She came from a big family. She's the eldest of her siblings and did a lot of caretaking with them. So it was just like, we're in this together. We will figure it out. Families stick together type of thing. And I would say like my grandma was one of those people that she felt like you needed to learn from her first versus learning in the streets. So like about sex and things of that nature. It was just like, I know we're going to talk about that here. Like she didn't shy away from those conversations. And it was great because on the flip side, my aunt was a little more reserved, reserved. Like, you know, I remember reading some kind of book, a Zane book, some kind of book at a young age that I probably, you know, they said I shouldn't be reading. But my grandma was like, let her read it. You know, basically like you don't want her sneaking around reading it. Mm-hmm. And so it was like a balance between their two personalities because she, my auntie was so reserved and coming from the city. And with my mom that was a little more lax. things that we can watch on TV, we was braided R, no curfew. There's a lot of different stuff moving in with my aunt in the suburbs. It was like a change in dynamic, but they balanced each other out. And like today, all of my aunts, but like today, the, my aunt that I lived in a house with Mona, I talked to her like probably every other day. Like, this is my mom. Like, I, she knows, you know, I tell her everything, basically, pretty much. So I'm thankful for both of them and the love they have. And, you know, they're my sheroes. And also, like, when my aunt just, she raised us. Anytime she's like the matriarch, even though she's not the eldest in the, you know, for her siblings. But the responsibility as far as, like, if somebody gets sick or something happened, everybody goes to her for help. Yeah. So love. <laughs> So
0: how was it growing up with your cousins?
1: Overall, it was fun. Like, overall, it was fun. So this is the thing. So me and my cousin, Tisa, we're a year apart. And then my middle sister and her sister, their birthday's two days apart. So we used to go visit them for the summers. And it was, you know, fun-filled or whatever. But then when we moved in, it changed a little bit. And it changed for, you know, different reasons, I think. It was like, here's some people new, new shiny toys. So for me and my cousin, her friends liked me or wanted to play with me. And I think that was an adjustment for her because even though we lost our mom, they were losing their mom in some sense because it was just them two. And now it's three girls moving in that has to vie for her attention. She has to, you know, take care of the resources that they got, you know, clothes, toys, whatever it may be. Now it's shared amongst five girls versus two So it was an adjustment period for them and for us as well. You know, we space that we had now is five girls in a room and now my gotta go get a bigger house. So I think at the very beginning it probably was a little rough on both sides because I remember feeling not to say feeling like you're walking around on eggshells, but just like you don't want to mess anything up. You know, Mm -hmm. like you I don't know, not that I felt like it was gonna go send us to a home or anything, but there was something about Try not to mess up and be good <laughs> mm-hmm. and be good in a sense. So me and my cousin, for me, family is family and I'm always going to like just ride out for family. But me and my eldest cousin for a little stint of time, there was like probably some jealousy or there was some contention amongst us. But as we grew, like going into high school and everything, it was just like we knew we had each other back, but we did have a few moments starting out in grade school where It wasn't pretty. But, like, my cousins, as I call them, my sisters, that's how I see them, like, you know, as my sisters. So it's love. Like, now, as adults, just to support and love, like, my oldest cousin, even though me and her had that little issue for a little bit of time, she's, like, one of my biggest supporters, you know? Being an artist isn't always easy. She's paid some bills, you know? So it's, like, it's love. But I think that's things you deal with when you're young, and just sharing and the growth, it's just, it's a lot there that you got to process. She had her own stuff going on with her dad and not being in the home. It was a lot for both sides. How
0: did you get interested in the arts?
1: Oh, gosh. Okay, so I was always involved in like dance of some sort, in choir. But what drew me to acting was when I was younger, watching Ladies Sing the Blues. Mm-hmm. That was my mom's favorite movie. I think she just liked Diana Ross. It was her favorite movie, along with like Mahogany. And she used to watch it all the time. Cause my mom used to do like a little fashion design. Like she was very, very fashionable. So I think that's why Mahogany, she liked that one. But watching Lady Sing the Blues. And I remember watching Lady Sing the Blues. Here you have Billie Holiday that is this wonderful voice, this wonderful talent. And you see how her life unfolded, you know, where she came from being the star she was in her demise, in a sense. And to me, I felt like that was like, in some ways, a representation of what was going on in my life. Mm -hmm. So I felt like, you know, the emotions that I got watching it, were it was a mix, like, I remember feeling happy, excited, sad, you know, it was just a lot of a range of emotions that I felt. And I liked the experience. I liked that I went through that. And I was just like, I want to, do that. I want to be able to give that to somebody else for them to one have something that they can relate to because I think that helped me see my mom as a mm-hmm. whole person because I felt Billie Holiday character or well, Billie Holiday as a full person. She just wasn't the drug, you know, addiction, and it was an outlet. It was an escape for me. So that was like the first memory I have that drew me to acting, and then one of the first opportunities that I got to do something was in grade school when they had the Wizard of Oz and I played like a munchkin and a couple of other um, characters in the play. And again, it was like the feeling, like at that point in my life, I have done cheer, ballet, you know, modern dance and I loved them. But when it came to that, I had all the butterflies in my stomach and I was like, what is this? What is this? Like I was good at a lot of stuff, but I was like, that was the, Thing that I wanted to be good at and then back then wanted people to feel that I was good at as well mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. you know that validation or accepting thing at that point but yeah that's what drew me to the arts
0: how was your first play how was it Wizard of Oz
1: it was wonderful like I wish I could have been Dorothy but I didn't have the voice you know I didn't have the voice like it all um, it was amazing just because it's like Wizard of Oz is a big production and I was in school in Chicago, so it wasn't as big of a production as it might have been somewhere else. But our theater director at that time, the guy, he came from that world. So to give these inner city kids an experience, like we go have singing, we're going to have dancing, you know, we have choreography, we're having costume changes. It was just like dope. Like we did it in our assembly hall. So it was very flat. But just to see them use the resources that they did have and build somewhat of a set. For it, in our assembly hall, it was so much fun. And then to like go on seeing other things, like when I went to junior high, I went to a predominantly white school for a brief moment in junior high and seeing their production and how they did everything, the resources they had, it was like, ah, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to do. I just love it. Even today, when I go to the movies, (laughs) Like, this is what happens. I'll be like, let's see. I don't know. I'm trying to think of a movie right now. Just say Wizard of Oz or whatever. So, Mm -hmm. Wizard of Oz was playing. So, all of the, I'll go in and I'm like, okay, I'm going to see Wizard of Oz. But after all of the, what am I, I can't think of the term, not the credits, but the other movies that's going to play that's coming out, the releases and stuff like Mm -hmm. that, I forget what I am there to see. Really? Okay. After
0: the trailers and
1: all? Yeah, after all of the trailers. (laughs) And they go, I'm like, what did I come to see? And then it comes on. But it's because I be so in the world of these trailers and these stories that's coming. It's like, I don't know. It makes me feel so good and makes me feel like, you know, you can just dream and be bigger and just Hmm. it just brings so much joy to my spirit. Like, I love it. I love it. I can tell. <laughs>
0: it's funny. When I was in high school, that's when I wanted to be an actress. Mm-hmm. My first play was, uh, Wizard of Oz*. I was a munchkin too. Ooh. I tried out for every part. That's the only part I got. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so when you went to Florida A&M, yeah. what made you decide to major in business versus Acting? From the aspect of arts, yes.
1: Okay. So growing up, so I go to grade school. That's the only theater that I do. I go to the North, the high school in the South Suburbs for, or the junior high for, in, for a few minutes thinking I'm going to, now I can do some acting. Then my mom passed. So we moved to the South Suburbs. The school I go to don't have an arts program. So it, it's like every time I try to do the arts, it was something that's like, nope, it's not happening. You know, it's not going to go down. And so I started playing sports and somewhere in my mind, it could have been a defense mechanism or it could have been something that I heard, you know, people being like, oh, you're going to be a starving artist. You're going to be a starving artist, that type of thing. So I took that on. And so I felt like, and again, being the responsible one, when I went to FAM, I liked accounting, like accounting was one of my favorite subjects in high school, or one of my favorite classes in high school. So I was like, I'm going to do accounting. And so when I went into the five-year MBA program, I kind of was like, I pushed it to the side a little bit. I don't know why. Well, I do know why, because it wasn't in my environment. I wasn't able to really express myself in that way throughout high school, except for doing a poem once. And so when I went to FAM, I don't know how I ended up in the Central Theater in Tucker Hall. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I went in, this was like doing one of the TOPS orientation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was doing TOPS. So I go in and I sit down and I speak with the guy in the theater department and I'm like yeah I'm doing the business program you know but I'm thinking about taking some acting classes so he kind of sit down goes through the curriculum with me and I'm excited again like it's starting to churn so I'm like okay I'm gonna minor in theater go back to SBI and they're like okay so here's your classes for the first semester and it was 18 hours mm-hmm. and so I was just like
0: you don't have time
1: you don't have time because Somewhere in my mind, because they said it was 18 hours, I had to do 18 hours. And because they said it was a five-year MBA program, I had to graduate in five years because, you know, that's my little rigid mindset. And so I threw theater basically to the side. I didn't minor in theater at that time on campus. I don't know. Do you know Erwin Moon? Mm-hmm. Moon? So Moon used to do a lot of artistic things and he did films and stuff like that. On campus. So I did get involved in some of the things that he was doing. So it was like, okay, it's starting to turn again. And so my junior year, when I went back to FAM after my internship, all my business courses was closed. So in order for me to stay a full time student, I had to, you know, pick some other classes. So at that time, I decided that I was going to pick some theater courses. So that semester, majority of my classes was theater. And so I lived in the Essential Theater building. And I again fell in love and was like, This is what I wanna do. This is what I wanna do. And SBI as started calling it the dungeon. And I was like, There's like little robots over there. Like <laughs> everybody <laughs> going to forum with their yeah. suits on and then in the theater, one of the one of the classes I really liked a lot was theater management course that was taught by Ms. Harding. And I think I liked it because it allowed me to utilize my business side and also my creative side. And I think that was also because I was still in that plan that safe zone, is safe. Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh, I can manage, you know, do a theater management company or something of that sort. But I fell in love. And at that point I was like, I knew I wanted to do acting. And I was trying to make the decision if I was going to just switch into the theater program or double major, like drop from a five-year program and do the four and double major but it was just so much turmoil because I came so far in the five-year program that it was like, do I just throw those credits away? And then also, that was how I got my money to pay for school. So I just settled for a minor, and I was like, okay. And that was such a hard decision, but I settled for a minor, and I thought, well, I'll go to grad school for theater. <laughs>
0: That's what that was your compromise to yourself.
1: That was my compromise to myself to only learn that when you go to grad school for theater, you need a certain amount of hours. In oh, in
0: undergrad. Okay. Yes,
1: yeah, because it's not like in the MBA where you can test into it or anything like that. And so then after that point, I ended up learning about conservatories and two-year programs and stuff like that, where you don't necessarily have to go to a four-year institution to act. You know, At that point, that was my knowledge of, you don't know a lot. You know, when you depending on what background you come from, if you're not exposed to it, you don't know that there's many different ways to get to that point. So you're thinking like, oh, you got to go to school for four years. Oh, you got to, you know, this and that. But it's like there's many ways to get there.
0: So if in high school, you had been more exposed or you went to high school, like the school you went to where you saw the big mm-hmm. production, would you have
1: made major? I believe I would have. I 100 percent believe I would have because I would have been immersed in it. Like, you know, coming into that school. The North Suburb School, I went in like towards the end of my seventh grade year and I was in their production. It was already up and running, but I was in the chorus and I was in the production. And then I had at the end of the year, you always try out for the next year's play. So I tried out and I was going to be the lead the eighth grade year. But that's like, you know, when my mom passed in our seventh grade year, when we went to the high school, which is what Glee is based off on. So if you like Mm -hmm. Glee, you know what Glee is about. It was like, oh, yeah, Yeah. I was definitely going to be doing that. I was just like, oh, wow, I just is finally it. So I think if I probably would have went to that high school, I know for sure I would have majored in theater. It's like you don't, when you're not exposed to things and there's no one that's telling you all these different avenues, you're like, okay, well, you know, you're going to college, you got to get a job. That's the purpose, right, to go to college and get a job, at least for us growing up in that time. Mm-hmm. Or career, or a job that's a little bit maybe better than your parents, depend upon what their mm-hmm. job was, and your family members don't know anything about it. A lot of people see artists as struggle bus, <laughs> and that's your parents true. want more than you to struggle.
0: That's true. Which is one reason I was like, mm, I can't act, and I'm like. You should start nursing. <laughs> when I thought about it, but
1: you know the interesting thing with that is, is that because we only know one side, we only know, <laughs> like, we only know one side. We only know like the acting side. What I wish I was exposed to at that age as well was like, just like in business, you have different job descriptions. There's managers in the business where like there's a business side to this industry. And a lot of times people don't know about it, you know. So that was something else that I wish I had an internship one time that I because I was being safe. It was with Seagram's out in California and I didn't take it because being in the the business program, a lot of our internships came with housing and you got paid. Well, this internship didn't come with housing and I didn't know anybody in California. So I was like, well, what am I supposed to do with that? So I didn't. Mm -hmm. Do the internship, which at that point Seagulls was attached to so many different outlets in the entertainment industry that I might have gotten an idea or a glimpse of, like, oh, how can I even apply my business background here? But nope, Mm -hmm. I chose good old safe KPMG, (laughs) oddity, (laughs) and I couldn't stand it.
0: (laughs) Oh, yeah. Talk to me about your scholarship. You mentioned giving back and basically being an example for other people Mm -hmm. who might, who interested in the arts and don't really know how to make a career out of it or don't want them to be discouraged. Right.
1: So the name of my scholarship is called Your Path Scholarship. And I do it via this platform called Go and Married. And so The scholarship, your path scholarship is about charting your own path, whatever it is that you, you know, you want to do in life. And it is for African-American, black artists, rather it's music, dance, TV, film, just artistry that wants to major and minor in the arts at HBCUs. And it's very specific. (laughs) And, you know, eventually I would like to grow it and expand it. But right now it's for HBCUs because I love my experience going to an HBCU, and I think, like I said, a lot, enough of us that know about the art in different aspects of it. And then sometimes, unfortunately, when we do have our parents, our parents aren't supporting that. For me, I always knew in the business program, we had this book called A Nothing Book, and you list 50 different things that you want to accomplish by a certain time. Having a scholarship was always something I wanted to do because that's what helped me get to fail. Like if I wouldn't have gotten those scholarships and grants and stuff my first year, I would probably would have been in the Army Reserve or I probably would have been going to school in Illinois somewhere. So I was always thankful for those opportunities that came my way via scholarship, and I wanted to help. But in my junior year, when I was trying to make that decision between going into theater and majoring, you know, double majoring or studying in the business program, that is, I was so conflicted. And a huge part of me not making that change was because I didn't have the money. I didn't have the resources. And so that defined what I wanted my scholarship to be around. Like at first it was like minors, whoever want a minor in theater. And then it became major and minor because if I'm like, if I can help someone with some kind of financial aspect of pursuing what it is that they want to pursue or going to that you know trying to career field out I mean in school then that's how I want to help that's how I want to show up so you know I didn't limit it to minor and I didn't limit it to major because I realized people are still finding their way so their parents may be like nope you got to stay in this business program but they want a minor and they, mm-hmm. need, they need some money to help pay for those classes so it's like major or minoring and the money goes to them, not to the school, because we know that the away from other things. So it's like it goes to you however you need to use it. Books, you know, supplies, rent, whatever the case like that. It's to help them with them.
0: And I'll put a link on my show.
1: Notes oh, perfect. So Thank you. Your yeah. The deadline is November fifteenth. November fifteenth. Okay. Oh, and I will say this with the scholarship with going through going married, one of the things I like about it is that if people want to donate to the scholarship, like other people, they can. And the more, you know, the money, however it donates, because it's $500 per scholarship that just helps somebody else get an opportunity, you know, get the money. So I like how they operate. Okay. Tell me about, you
0: mentioned struggling in college. Mm -hmm. I know in your book you talked about your stepfather driving you back to school and basically getting set up in your own apartment and, the struggle with trying to be an adult sort of, but you're still in school mm-hmm. and you're still struggling, but you have bills to pay because you're not on campus and your father had passed away. So you were kind of on your own.
1: Yeah, I was. And I would say this, like, even like with my dad being alive, he was a you know huge, like emotional support, but from the financial standpoint, he wasn't that person in my life. Mm-hmm. My stepdad was that financial provider Kind of like, I would say, up until my mom passed and we moved in with my grandma, and then it shifted. Like, he still, you know, paid for like clothes and stuff when we were younger, but the big bills wasn't happening. So, yeah, my sophomore year, my dad had passed. So now both of my parents were gone. I had managed to buy a car that summer because I saved up money from my internship. So I have purchased a car. And my stepdad drove down with me. And Basically, he dropped me off and and was like, "Okay, you're good. The struggle was having to maneuver all of those things. Like this is my first time in my own apartment. Now, although I didn't done the research to figure out what you got to cut on the lights and all of this, like I was a planner. I was a planner. I was really Mm -hmm. good with planning. And I had saved up money for my internship. So I knew I had this amount of money, like three months or four months of money worth of rent. You know, I lived on a budget, like I just knew where my money went, was coming and going at that point in time. But the struggle was, it's like, you don't know what tomorrow will be. And when my stepdad left me there, I felt alone. And I felt like, again, one of those, all right, well, you got to do it yourself. You know, you do go into action type of thing. Like I felt like, how can you not see that I need help? You know, Mm -hmm. how can you not make sure that tomorrow your lights get turned on. You have groceries and that, you know, in the house. Like, how don't you see that? Mm-hmm. And I vowed, like, at that moment that I wasn't going to ask him for anything. It was like one of those, I'll show you, I'll prove you. I'm not going to need you. It became mm-hmm. one of those things, like, I don't want to need you for anything. Mm-hmm. And I think the hard part, uh, the biggest part was that being, used like, you know, that loss, that great loss that summer with my dad, and now I'm feeling by myself. I'm just like, you're deserting me too. That's just how it felt. You felt like you deserted me as well. So those are the struggles like, at, you know, 18, 19 years old, just feeling like <laughs> you got to take, you got to pay for school. Your grades got to stay up because you got to keep the money coming in. You got to make sure you have internship lined up. If you do get a student loan, you got to be so specific in how you spend it so it can last you. You know what I mean? So it's stuff like that. And I would say, my freshman year, I went into FAM. I'm thankful that I ended up getting in-state in school at FAM my freshman year because I went in and I was doing, like, the ROTC program. That's a whole nother story. We'll talk about that later. Yeah. And I had, like, joined the reserve. And so long story short, after my freshman year, first semester, I'm like, I can't do this because there was a deploying unit and they was deploying people left and right, and I just wanted to go to school. And so, mm-hmm. got out. Or well, they said I went AWOL, but got out. You're uh, <laughs> <laughs> just going about this story. Right. <laughs> I know, right? I remember, like, going into because you got to do this whole domicile thing to get in state your freshman year. And I remember going back into the registrar office and being like, "I'm not in ROTC anymore. I'm not in the reserve anymore. I had it in state and." Yeah, I just need to. I wanted to let you guys know because basically, I'm thinking they're going to switch me back to out of state. Mm-hmm. They did not. Let me tell you, that was a blessing. The lady was like, So I'm going to act like you never even walked in here.
0: <laughs> okay. I
1: was like, Okay. Because okay. that was such a heavy burden. Like, do I tell them? Do I what? You know, because I'm honest. Like, uh, yeah, so, right. So I told them, <laughs> and, but it was such a blessing because I did have in-state, my time at FAM, so it definitely made it more affordable than if I was paying those out-of-state fees. So it was just like, I was a planner, man. Like, I'm glad I liked accounting because I had to figure the budget out. But it was a struggle. It was a, definitely a struggle f- from a financial standpoint and then just emotionally. And then I think a lot of family members are like on my dad's side thought that my stepfather was doing a lot and he mm-hmm. wasn't. But I would never say anything.
0: So I was just like, okay. So how's your
1: relationship? Well, my step, my, great. And it always been great. You know, it's like, I'm thankful and I don't only can give it to God because I have a forgiving heart. You know, I'm one of those people. I'm going to tell you how I feel. Cause I have to do that. Mm-hmm. But I love my stepdad. Like he's been in my life since I was one. He has his own issues. And I think somewhere along the line, I learned that people are human, obviously, And they have their own thing. Like, even those are things that hurt me with my stepdad and stuff like that. It also built some form of character in me, and it taught me lessons. You know, those are some of his shortcomings, and those are the things that he has to grow, hopefully, or learn or, you know, figure out for himself. But it was like I never wanted to carry that in a way where it was just like, oh, because he did this, now I hate this, and I hate men, or... You know, just see people in a certain light. So I'm very thankful that whatever God put on the inside of me, you know, through work and releasing and addressing and all that kind of stuff, it allows me to still move in love because I think that's ultimately how we should move. And then you, you know, some people just got to remove out your cipher. You love them, but they ain't. Yes, let them go. You know, but it's good. Yeah, I love my dad. He's funny. He always like just nowadays, when we talk about certain stuff, like reading a book, I'd be like, Why did you do this? Or why did you whatever? And he'd just be like, You just seem so responsible. Like I told him about the time when he left. And I was like, You didn't think that I needed help. And he was just like, Candace, you just you seem so fearless. You just seem like you always had it together and you wasn't scared. And I'm just like, I was scared. I was scared. And maybe I should have said that. And that's why mm-hmm. people, you know, that whole saying, check on your strong friend is like parents, check on your strong kid. You know, <laughs> they got stuff going on.
0: <laughs> Tell me about your career now. How did you go from acting, directing, and you have a production company now? I
1: do. I do. Yes. So, you know, as I said, I was in a business program. I did business literally up until I was still in corporate America, in and out, I would say, honestly, up until last year, October. So the first time that I left corporate America was when I lived in New York with Pfizer. I left because I had got an opportunity to do a children's tour. And that was like a four-month stint on the road. And I thought, I'm not going back to corporate America. I'm done with it. I didn't necessarily plan accordingly. And then we had that whole change in the economy. (laughs) And so it shook some stuff up. And I ended up starting doing real estate. But I was always like, At that point, when I left Pfizer at that time, I always was, if I was like, if I have to work, I need to try to find jobs that are flexible or that would allow me to do my acting. acting. And at that time, I was still not telling the jobs, this is what I did, because I didn't want them to have a certain viewpoint or think I'm going to be on auditions doing my lunch hour and all that kind of stuff. So I did real estate for a while, and then I started doing some project managing And in that time, when I was still in New York, that is where I went to this two-year acting program called William Esper Studio. And because I was like, I know I want to act. This is what I want to do. And so did that in New York. is a lot of creatives, a lot of people. So I worked with a lot of different writers and producers as an actress. And the first film that I line produced was a film called Hey, Diddle Diddle. So that was me using my business skills. And it was like a what is Line, line producing, producing is like the person that deals with and it varies depending on the budget of the film but it deals with like the budgeting of the film what costs you're looking at the cost of stuff how it applies if you can afford it sometimes in my case I played a big part in you know interviewing some of the people that was coming on board as far as crew or managing okay. those things and dealing with payroll and, and all that kind of okay. stuff So that was like my business, you know, my business side coming into it. And then I also acted in it. So that was the first like producing aspect. And then from there, someone else saw that I did that and asked me to come on and help produce their project. And so I did that. And that was just still me operating a lot from, you know, the safety side of business and knowing some aspects of it. And then between producing and acting, directing came because in in New York, I was a drama ministry director. So Mm -hmm. I was still like, I don't know if I can direct a film because it's like so many moving pieces and you got to see it a certain way. But I dabbled in it there. But then coming to L.A. in the Richard Lawson studio, we have this class called PDP. And in there you have to it's like about 13 films you do. They're short films, but you write, produce and you direct your own films. And so that allowed me to just expand my directing side of things. But my production company, Your Path Productions, got started say maybe about five years ago now. And the first film that was underneath that was my film, Dated and Waiting, that I wrote and co-produced with two other ladies. And I started in it. So that's how the production companies started. I always like kind of have a vision of these different businesses and legs and branches that I want operating under it. And your path is like the root. And then like your mm-hmm. path scholarship is a an extension of it. And then there's a few, my um, publishing company is a other different branches that comes out of, you know, this production company.
0: What's the most challenging aspect of acting, producing, directing?
1: You say? Oh gosh. All of them are new skill sets. And it's a learning curve. Like just because you do one don't mean you can do the other or not say could do doesn't mean you just automatically know like you have to do just as much research with acting and what goes into it because it has its own avenue. What goes into producing and directing? It has its own set of things, people, knowledge and so forth. So a lot of times I think on the outside looking in, it's like, oh, well, I could do all of it and you probably can you know everybody can you know you know you probably can but it's just recognize that each of those entities require a different skill set requires a different muscle and one of the things i'd like to say is that you know a lot of times for instance people be like oh you know i can act that's easy i can do it i don't know if it's cuz they watch reality tv or what but it's like understand there's a skill set to go behind it so for me to be like oh i can produce that's nothing it's like no, there's certain things that go into that, and I think as people and as artists, it's like when you respect everybody's position, you see where the magic happens, because it takes all of it to make it come to life.
0: It's true. I did this summer program. I think I was in high school, and it was I was reading this book, and there, were, someone was making fun of this actress saying how easy it was, mm-hmm. and I think the person was a doctor, and he's like. It's just like me going to your job and trying to operate on somebody. It's not that easy. It's the skill set behind it. People see it on TV or reality show and think it's easy, and it's really no. not. And I can understand it. Yeah, too.
1: and it's continual training because I have a friend, and she means nothing about it, but she, she's a doctor. And so, like, I have an ongoing, like, scene study class, and she'd be like, what are you getting a doctor? Like, you got some certificates? Like, what's going on? Why are you still taking class? Basically, like, people think it stopped. They think, like, oh, you took some acting classes. And the training stops. And it's like, no, you're always training. You're always learning. You're always growing. It's no different from when, you know, different fields have additional courses that they need to take to brush up on stuff. And with acting is like, people be like, well, you did it once already. What, what you didn't learn enough? You ain't, you're not good enough. <laughs> like it's, it's so funny. I don't even think about it, but it's yeah. a muscle. You got to stay in the gym. You got to use it.
0: It's true. So what are some last-minute words of advice that you would give my listeners that are interested in acting or just anything? Because part of my podcast, it's called Running Is Cheaper than Therapy, but I interview people who have overcome obstacles oh. to get to their finish line. So in life we all have some type of obstacle and we all have goals and aspirations, whether it be the arts, whether it be medicine, whether it be athletic aspirations, but there are always obstacles that you have to overcome. Mm -hmm. What advice would you give people who have goals and aspirations?
1: Okay, First, I want to say I love your title of your book because I remember you told me that years ago. And I was just like, I love it because it is. And working out (laughs) does so much for you mentally. But the advice I have for people with goals and aspirations is first, know that you are enough. You are enough. Don't seek validation from the outside, validate yourself. Give yourself that permission to move forward. And that, you know, in life you have obstacles, but it doesn't last forever. And it's all about perception. How do you see it? Or if you come up against something, because we come up against some things a couple of times in life. It's like, what lesson can you take from it? How can you grow? And if it comes up again, how do you respond differently is it the same response? But just know that it does not have to last. And I always like to look for the lesson in things because I feel like there is a lesson no matter how small. And not that the lesson is always, a lot of times people is pointing a finger and it's not like, well, what they did. It's Sometimes it's like it rubs up against you because there's a certain growth or certain place that God is trying to get you to or what's to come, you know what I mean, to make you stronger. So look for the lesson and keep pushing forward. Just don't let no discourage you. to be a motivator.
0: So tell my viewers or listeners where they can get your book and all your social media platforms. I'll put it in my notes. But Okay.
1: To- <laughs> you can get the book, Being Number One, Overcoming Obstacles and Healing Your Inner Child, from Amazon. Right now, for a limited time, I've decided I'll extend the signing of books. So if you do want a signed book, you can get it from my website. CandiceLenoir.com and that's C-A-N-D-I-C-E-L-E-N-O-I-R.com all of my social handles is my name at CandiceLenoir on Instagram Facebook and Twitter and my acting author page is Candice L. Lenoir. <laughs> yeah well thank
0: you for joining us today thank you for having me thank you I love this love it Wraps up this episode of Running Is Cheaper Than Therapy podcast. Thank you for tuning in. Please, if you already haven't, download Running Is Cheaper Than Therapy podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or however you listen to your favorite podcasts. If you have any questions, comments, or possible show topics, please email Running Is Cheaper Than Therapy OLB. OmahaLoveBrown at gmail.com. Again, that is writing is cheaper than therapy. O as in Omaha, L as in love, B as in Brown at gmail.com. Dr. Brown can also be reached via Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Handle we, O U I life, L I V E, we, O U I love, L O V E. Again, we, O-U-I, life, L-I-V-E, we, O-U-I, love. Thank you and please tune in again.